Open up your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13, we've come to the final chapter and the final words in our journey through the book of Nehemiah. And if you're online joining us, your online host will direct you, pull out your note sheets. And I have a confession to offer at the beginning of the message. And here's my personal confessional to you this morning. I am a man who continues to struggle with and has been struggling with terminal niceness most of my life. Terminal niceness. See, growing up, I figured out, to play Pastor Obvious for the minute, I wasn't going to be the strongest kid, the fastest kid, or the smartest kid. But I figured out if I would be a nice kid, I kind of could get ahead a little bit. I'd make a way. I could make an impression. So I kind of set myself to be the nicest kid. I'd sit near the front row for the teachers. I was the, the kid in class whom the teachers wanted to have there. And as I continued to grow up, and when I left Eli Lilly and I joined pastoral ministry and I was 25 years old, I had kind of determined that one of the fruits of the Spirit must be niceness. So I set myself on the path to be a pastor who was knowing for being nice. And then I found myself as a young pastor in meetings and conversations and situations that no seminary could prepare you for, though they did a good job. They just can't prepare you for some of the real-life human realities. And I was in some meetings where niceness wasn't going to work. I was in a conversations where the topic needed to be get, uh, it's just going to get tense, and there needed to be some really difficult things discussed. And I can remember being a young pastor and just inside, just being so twisted around with, gosh, am I going to push into the harder topics here? Am I going to have the harder words that need to be expressed? Or I usually, what I did was I just looked for the exit ramp marked nice, and I just took the exit ramp. And I closed in prayer and had a nice pastoral smile and sent them on their way. But then as I kept walking with Jesus... I started to notice something of the many qualities that Jesus manifests, displays, and represents for our lives. One of the qualities that really doesn't show up, if you were to look below the surface, is nice. One writer said the leadership formula he determined was, it went something like this, effective, effective leadership is kind of effective minus nice plus kind. Effective minus nice plus kind. That's kind of. Brene Brown put it this way to be clear in her book, Dare to Lead. She put, to be clear is to be kind. To be unclear is to be unkind. To be clear is to be kind. So a few years were rolling along, and I was in another one of those pastoral meetings. I was probably in my late 20s at this point, and the member of the congregation, she was in her probably mid-30s, and she scheduled time. She's having some problems she wanted to talk about, and she started to unfold for several minutes through lots of tears how she, was, she wanted to come and ask the, the direct question to me was, why is it that I can't make friends? She's like mid-30s. She's like, I can't, no one wants to be my friend, or the friends I do have just kind of drift away, and she's going on and on, she's all twisted up about this, and I'm sitting there, and I've known, I'd known her for a few years, and I kind of knew deep down in my heart what the Lord would want me to bring forward here, and niceness wasn't going to cut it. I'm sitting there, and I'm 
praying through it. And as gently as I knew how to say, after she finished her 10 plus minutes, wiped away some tears, she looked so, so help me understand that, Pastor. I said, have you ever considered this? Have you ever stepped back and thought about that the reason people don't want to be your friend is that you're a really difficult person to be around? I said when, because I'd spent a fair amount of time with her, and I'd been around some others who spent a fair amount of time with her, and I had some data points on this, and I was bringing up a few examples then about when people are in relationship with you, they find the relationship mentally and emotionally exhausting and draining, and so they just kind of, you wear them out. And so they quietly drift away and find other friendships because it's really exhausting to be in relationship with you. It was silent. More tears. Let's just say that she didn't schedule a follow-up meeting. <laughs> you see, to be clear is to be kind, and to be unclear is to be unkind. And so this is where Nehemiah, and I entitled today, like confronting terminal niceness. So church, if we're going to navigate some of the realities from the youngest of child in the room to the oldest of adult and the moment of history God's placed us in as followers of Jesus, if we're going to navigate this moment, terminal niceness is going to have to be dealt with. And Nehemiah is in that spot in the last chapter of his book, all the journey we've been since early September with him. Remember when God tapped him on the shoulder and said, I've got something for you to do, a really big project. And Nehemiah falls on his face before God and he prays and he fasts and he cries out for five months. And then he goes to Jerusalem and he begins the project and he rebuilds the wall in the midst of all kinds of adversity and all the things that came against him. He got the project done, but we talked about the wall was never the end of the story. The wall was always a means to a bigger end. The bigger end was what? The rebuilding of the people's hearts. And if the wall was challenging to build, Nehemiah and Ezra find out what's even more challenging is try to reform and rebuild the human heart. Put yourself on that task for a while, that's going to humble you. And so this is the space Nehemiah's in. He was appointed governor over the property of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. He was governor there for 12 years after the wall was built. And then we're not sure exactly why, but he sent he goes back to Babylon to serve under Artaxerxes for a period of time. Remember Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, 700 miles, modern-day Iraq. That's where he goes back to. And he's probably there to kind of give a report and to let the king know that he's handling things the way the king wants them handled, kind of build rapport. But we're not told how long he's there. But while Nehemiah is away, Nehemiah 13 records the events of what's happening in the city when he's away. And then he comes back. And he has to choose something beyond niceness. He has to choose a clarity grounded in kindness because the fruit of the Spirit includes kindness and kindness includes clarity. And that's where the story... So we're going to look at four confrontations of clarity. I'm calling them four places of reform that Nehemiah confronts and a bridge into our own lives today. Starting verse 4, chapter 13. 
So before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Now, where has that name Tobiah come up before? Do you guys remember in the story? Do you remember the trio of trouble? Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. That should, those of you who've been on the journey with us, that should ring a bell. Those three haven't been on the pro, like, Yahweh worshiping team. They weren't like pro-God, yay, rebuild the wall. No, they were, they were resistant, they were rebellious, they were hard-headed, hard-hearted. It was a thorn in Nehemiah's flesh. Tobiah, that's this Tobiah. Tobiah provided him with a large room formerly used. So this is where Tobiah is living. He's living now in the temple in a room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, as well as contributions for the priests. So Eliashib, he's later called the high priest. So his job is to make sure that the arrangements in the temple continue to honor the Lord. That's his job. Like he's got to hold the fort on the temple. And while Nehemiah is away, he decides to convert one of the rooms. He converts one of the rooms that used to house articles for worship. He converts it into an apartment for Tobiah. And Nehemiah steps back in now. He sees this, and you might imagine it's not very nice. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I'd returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission, came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about, notice what he calls it, the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. So he's saying, hey, you are the spiritual leader who are supposed to be handling this temple and the rooms the way God wants them handled. And you have removed the articles of worship to create space for Tobiah of all people, the one who's been a perpetual thorn in the flesh for us as leaders and as the people of God all these years. And now he's living in the temple. By the way, no indication there's been any change of heart in Tobiah. This is all about compromise. This is the first layer of reform he's calling him to. He's like, hey, you're compromising relationally in the house of God. And he calls him to it. Look at verse 8. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. Listen to what Chuck Swindoll, he kind of summarizes this part. Swindoll says, Nehemiah did that because he was determined he would not live with wrong, Tobiah's evil, in a place that was built for right. So here's the first kind of layer of reform he steps back into. He says, hey, there's been drift. There's been compromise here. And he calls right back, goes to Eliashib, the high priest, dealing with the leaders. He says, tosses the stuff out on this, gets into Tobiah's apartment, tosses all his stuff out on the street, load it up, toss it out on the street. Doesn't seem very nice, but kind is clear. And you know, I think, church, I think this is a cultural moment that we're thrust into. I think this era of history we're going to look back on and we're going to see that there's a, there's a real confusion that's circulating in the atmosphere and it's kind of invading the church world. And it goes something like this, that we've equated love with approval. So I want you to stay with me now. Think about this. Young people, if you're checking out, dial back in for a second. All right, come back. Think about this with me. Love and approval. Jesus called us 
to love all people everywhere. The call to love is clear, and he models it with his life. We are called to love all people everywhere, but we've muddied the waters and we've blended love with approval. That just because Jesus calls us to love all people everywhere, that love doesn't mean that you just give carte blanche approval and affirmation for everyone's choices and values and opinions. That's not how love works. Think about Jesus himself. Jesus, who loved Peter, said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. That's not very nice. Did he love Peter? Of course he loved Peter, but Peter had to be confronted, clear as kind. There were some things going on in Peter's heart that out of love, he's not giving approval to Peter's choices and actions, he's calling him to a higher ground. Do you see this? Jesus loved the religious leaders who made his life really hard, but he got them together and he called them whitewashed tombs and a brood of vipers. That's not very nice. Jesus loved the Roman soldiers who drove spikes into his hands and his feet. And on the cross, when he's dying, his last breath, what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. What does that tell you about their actions? Jesus isn't giving approval for their actions. He's loving them and drawing a line in the sand where love is distinguished from approval. The failure to give approval for someone's choices or behaviors or actions is different than the extension of love. And we've got to be clear on this in the church. Are you with me? Am I just making any sense? This is... So let me press this a little further. Because the most loving thing we can do is to be clear when something is out of bounds. Like that's out of love. Like it's loving to not let another person settle for less than God's best. Remember the greatest human temptation from last week? We talked about Merton's quote. is to settle for less. Well, it's loving to come alongside someone and say, I don't want you settling for less than God's best. You say, well, that's not very nice. It may not be nice, but it's loving. It's kind. I'm not giving approval on your settling choices. I'm not giving approval on your relational compromise. I love you enough to call you to higher ground. That's Jesus' way. See, it's love that says, Tobiah, you can't have an apartment in the temple. That's love. You can't contaminate the house of God that way. That's love. Tossing all the stuff out on the street. Tobiah comes home, picture him coming home, all of his stuff's laying out on the streets. Who did that? Nehemiah, I did. And then he clarifies out of a love for God and for this person. See, it's true love that doesn't mirror back the cultural values. Hear this. It's true love that points to a window to another kingdom with another king. That's true love. True love's not a mirror, it's a window, as we've been discussing throughout this series, and I think this is a cultural moment that we find ourselves in, church. And it's a moment that's charged with great compromise, and this is why pastors and church leaders, this is why there's a lot of struggle in Jesus' church going on in our culture, because the moment you step out and you try to be clear with what God has to say on things, cancel culture's coming for you. 
And so it's easy, it's, you're, you feel the pull to just kind of take the nice exit ramp. It's not unloving for a church to step forward and declare that God has created the entity of marriage to be between a man and a woman. That's not unloving. It's not unloving to say that God has made every person on the planet, with the, stamped them with the Imago Dei. He's made them in His image. And God has created two genders that He assigned when He knit them together in their mother's womb, male or female. It's not unloving to say that. It's not unloving to step forward and say sexual intimacy is a gift from God that's reserved to be experienced in the covenant called marriage. And marriage is between a man and a woman. It's not unloving to declare those things. Now listen, I'm sure on many occasions I have in unloving ways communicated those things. I'm human, I fall short. It's not unloving to declare them. We want to declare them in a loving way. I want to be kind. I want to be gracious. I want to be understanding. I want to be empathetic. But hear this. Just because we're not extending approval of someone's choices or behaviors on topics of marriage or gender or sexuality, it doesn't mean we're not loving them. That we are loving them enough to call them to a vision for a life that God has outlined. And the vision of life that God has outlined, that's one that's thriving and flourishing. God has your best in mind. God knows how. He puts you together. He's got plans and purposes for your life. Go God's way. And guess what God's way involves? There are some thou shalls and thou shall nots. And it's loving to be clear with those. And so that's our commitment as a church. That's our commitment. That's my commitment. To be clear that we want to uphold Jesus' vision for loving all people everywhere. And that vision involves upholding a biblical worldview that says God has made clear. God has given us the vision for human flourishing and thriving. He's the one who set it out. He didn't leave it up for a group of humans get together and debate it and vote other people off the island and do all that stuff. No, that's not how this works. We receive this revelation and we submit to it and we let our lives thrive underneath that loving rule. Church, that's love. And yes, that involves then. You mean, pastor, then there are some things that... There are some times then we're going to have to toss some stuff out of the apartment and throw it out on the street and say, that's not what God has for your life. And perhaps some of you are in that situation. Perhaps you are here today, and maybe you're struggling with some Christians in your life, and if they've in an unloving way approached you about different things, press beyond that for a second and just say, wow, it took a lot of courage for that person to approach me about that subject and to ask me those questions or to challenge me to think through some things or to courageously confront. That takes, boy, that's, that's a true friend, I would say. And we're, listen, we're imperfect. We're not always going to get it right. But church, we got to hear this. Under this call to reformation that Nehemiah is dealing with, here's the space I want us to reflect on. Are there some spaces in your heart, in my heart, in the heart of our church where some compromise has begun to creep in? And we've blended love with approval and we've started tossing out Jesus based upon all this stuff that's been done that really didn't have anything to do with Jesus. 
And I can't help but wonder if some of the younger generation's reaction, you know, there's a massive exit going on. There's a lot of young people exiting the church of Jesus, and I can't help but wonder this. I don't think they're really leaving Jesus. I think they're leaving the vision of Jesus that's being passed down to them. And so it's our role, church, to give them the kind of vision that I think God has said. And this is one of the visions. Young people, this is what you got to see. The vision Jesus is passing down to follow him is one, love all people everywhere and love them enough not to give carte blanche approval to every choice and action and decision. You got to draw some lines in the sand. And love and approval are not the same thing. You can withhold approval and extend love, and you're going to need a lot of help from the Holy Spirit to do that. And that's where Nehemiah's at. How are we doing? Are you still with me? So the second phase of reform, that was just phase one of reform. We got three more, I promise. That's my longest point. And uh, we're really going to get meddling now because he's going to start talking about money. So he's really upset about the compromise relationally that's going on. It wasn't very nice. He was kind to be clear, and now he's going to be kind and clear about money stuff because he comes back and he finds this. Look at verse 10. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites, now who are the Levites? They're like the spiritual leaders. Think of them as like pastors and priests that had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So you see that? What happened was the pastors and priests had to go back to farming to pay the bills. And Nehemiah's upset now. Look at verse 11. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes. Remember that word tithes means 10% of grain, new wine, oil into the storerooms. I put Shelmaniah the priest, Zadok the scribe, the Levite named Pedai in charge of the storerooms. And I made Hanan son of Zakur, son of Madaniah their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. Underline that in your Bibles. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. So this is the second phase of reform. The first phase of reform he calls them to is you've got to examine some places of compromise and if we've kind of been blurring lines between love and approval. Second one here is he calls them into this space of looking at going, hey, first fruits giving, we got to get back to it. It's drifted away. And he calls them, he uses the word rebuked. This isn't a nice word. It's a word reeb in Hebrew. It means to reprimand, to contend, to vigorously grapple. No room for terminal niceness here with Nehemiah. He's vigorously grappling with what's out of bound, and he's clear in his kindness about it. And he gets four men together, and he says, you guys need to get this fixed. He gets trustworthy guys, get them together, see the problem, here's the situation, step in and deal with it. Get this back on track. It's love that's doing this. Out of love, his devotion to God, and out of his love for the people, the things financially had gotten all out of line. He knows God's supposed to be our first love. It's supposed to be reflected in how we handle our finances. He's worthy of first fruits. That's why first was always important, because the first 10% is God's, because God's supposed to be first in our hearts. And so Nehemiah knew this, that God's house was going to be well cared for as God's people's hearts were reformed. So the reformation of God's people's hearts manifested in the care of God's house, and that's what Nehemiah was dealing with. See, the money issue exposed the heart issue, and that's why Nehemiah was going reeb on them. He's like vigorously contending. It's got him amped up. 
because the money stuff was a gateway to the heart. Just like we talked about last week. Remember the, Jer- or the Matthew 6, 19 principle of money from Jesus' life? It says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The reason Jesus talks so much about treasure, money, stuff, is because he cares about this. This has the power to affect this. If you want to know what's going on here, pay attention to what's going on here is what Jesus said. So Jesus said, I want to talk about this because I'm after this. And Nehemiah's like, hey, 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 we got to talk about first fruits giving because I'm concerned about what that's revealing in the heart. And I like what John Piper, I found this quote this week. It says, when we work this muscle of first fruits giving, here's what we're saying to God. The joy that I pursue is not the hope of getting rich with things from you. I've not come to you for your things, but for yourself. And this desire I now intensify and demonstrate by giving up things in the hope of enjoying you more, not the things. Hear this. By giving to you what you do not need and what I might enjoy, I am saying more earnestly and more authentically, you are my treasure, not these things. And so church family, how are we doing here? How are we doing with this? It's a good time. Pause, step back, and examine. When we look at all that God's entrusted with us, are we working the muscle of first fruits giving? Taking the first 10% before anybody gets anything else, it's the Lord's. Everything He entrusts you with, you give the first 10%, you bring it into the house of God where you receive your primary spiritual care and you offer it back to Him as an act of worship. And the act of faith is this, like we talked about last week. God can do more with our 90% than we can do with 100%. There's the act of faith. And this is the one space he says, test me in this. See how it goes. If you've never done that or not, this would be a good time to try it. Give that a try. Test God in this and see what he does. And this is the muscle he's working in the heart. He's trying to expand our soul to say, don't find contentment and peace in things and stuff. Give it away and find it in me and me alone. That's why giving is so important. God doesn't need it. It's we as people working the muscles of giving it away. That's what needs to happen. It's a reformation of the heart. So the first is relational contamination. Tobias moved into the temple. The second is the pastors are back out farming in the field to pay the bills, and that's all jacked up, and he's got to straighten the get first fruits giving back front and center. And now the third wave, he's not done yet. How are we doing? Are you still good? He's coming to Sabbath day now. So let's see how this is going. And this all happened just, you know how long he's been gone, but let's say it was just a few years ago. How'd they get so far off track in just a few years? Kind of, right, commentary on all of our lives, right? We just kind of drift, and we don't drift to great places, and look what happens now. They drifted into this. In verse 15, in those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and other kinds of loads, and they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. And then look what happened. Verse 16, men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. And that's Bible language for that's God's people on the Sabbath, now having just turned into a massive marketplace. And so this is one of the top tens. If you know your Bible well, you know that one of the top tens, Ten Commandments, is honoring the Sabbath day and making sure it's, it's committed to be holy. And so Nehemiah's upset he's going to the leaders. He uses the same word, rebuke, reeb, vigorously contending. He's saying, hey, this is out of bounds. Out of love, he's not giving approval to their choices. Out of love, he's calling them back in line with what God wants. Out of love, he's doing that. To be clear is to be kind. And he's being clear, and he's going to the leaders who can do something about it. And he's like, 
God set a rhythm for us to live in. It's called six in one. Six days, work, produce, accomplish, create. One day, Sabbath. Rest, replenish, renew. Six in one, six in one. It's not 20 in one or 30 in one or 60 in one. It's six in one. Get after it. Work, produce, accomplish, create, bust your tail, give all you've got. And then notice resting gets its definition from working. No point resting if there's no working. I think that's for someone here. (laughs) Others of you know you really struggle. Some have a PhD in rest, others have a PhD in work. So we struggle on one end of the spectrum or another. The rhythm is this, get after it for six and pause, honor the Sabbath, rest, renew, and replenish. Here's what I found in my life in this issue, because this has been a, this has been a challenge for me from very early on in my working world, is that when I abuse the Sabbath long enough, when I press beyond the boundaries of six and one, when I go too hard, too fast, too long, illness, illness becomes my Sabbath. Does that make sense? I'm laying in bed, staring at a ceiling fan with a fever. God just shut me down. How do you like that, Simpson? Here you go. Eat a few Sabbath days. There you go, all in bed. That's not great. That's not a great way to stop. So how are we doing with that? Some of you maybe need a little kind of brought back in line on the working front. Maybe you've been a little bit too much on the resting front. Need to be brought in work, produce, accomplish, create. Others of you may be pushing really hard on the six and struggling with the one. Where is it? He's calling them back saying, hey, this is where you find true life. This is the boundaries that God has drawn. This is how you flourish as a human being. So Tobias, got to get out of the temple. First fruits giving, got to get reset. First 10% has got to be the Lord's. And honoring the Sabbath day, six and one. We got to get into that rhythm. He's calling them back. Remember to be clear is to be kind. And then the last and fourth reformation he calls him to is the home front, and this perhaps is the most difficult. Check this out. Verse 23, it says, Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. That would be Hebrew. They didn't know Hebrew anymore. I rebuke them, same word, reeb, vigorously content, called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. That's not nice. (laughs) I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. So this is a renovation now of the home front. Do you see? This had to be a rough day. I don't know if this is all like day one for Nehemiah. Gosh, this had to be a rough day. He's got Tobiah's situation. He's got the first fruits giving. He's got Sabbath day. And now he's got a whole mess going on on the home front. He looks at the condition of the homes. Here's what Nehemiah knows. The strength of the nation is built on the backbone of the strength of the home, the family unit. And he knew if there's erosion and deterioration at home, the na- it's just a matter of time before the nation crumbles. So he steps in. We said, where's the erosion happening? There's intermarrying. So the intermarrying, what, what's wrong with that? It's because the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, that's what Ashdod and Moab and all that represent, they're intermarrying with the Israelites and they're introducing foreign gods and foreign language and foreign ways. And it's pulling the people of God away. How far are they drifted? They don't even know Hebrew anymore. 
They can't even speak the language. The only language the scriptures are communicated in at that point is Hebrew. And now the kids, they can't even read the Bible or hear the Bible or listen to the Bible because the people had drifted a long ways away. Can you feel it? Church, can you feel? This is not permission to start laying hands on people and pulling hair out, okay? This isn't permission. Hear this. In your Old Testament, you've got three kinds of laws, ceremonial, civil, and moral. The first two, ceremonial and civil, Jesus came and fulfilled. He eradicated. They're no longer in place. They're no longer binding on the people of God. That's why we're not pulling out hair. That's why we're not like um, goats and bulls slaughtered at ceremonial laws for sin. All of that stuff was eradicated with Jesus' once and final sacrifice. But the moral law transcends all time, all culture. That's like top 10, right? We wouldn't debate the Ten Commandments. There's a moral law being laid down. So we, when we come to passages like this, we got to see through the ceremonial and the civil, we got to see to the moral principle at hand. Nehemiah is just so devoted to God that he's upholding the ceremonial and civil laws that are at hand. You say, well, how are those rooted? I put them in your notes. Deuteronomy 25, that's where he has the basis for laying hands on someone who's outside the bound. Like if they're not handling their life, sometimes you've got to put hands on them. So he put hands on them. And then Ezra 9, that's sort of pulling hair out of beard. It was a symbol of like a kind of a deep repentance, a condemnation for behavior. That's what's going on here. And so this is the this is the environment that Nehemiah is stepping into. And so what's the principle that comes out of this is Nehemiah is deeply disturbed with the spiritual condition of the family unit. And church, this is where we can't take this casual. This is the principle we extract from here. The spiritual condition of the family unit matters deeply. See, the cultural value that's kind of working its way through parenting circles the last several years is, well, just leave it up to the kids to sort it out. Choose whatever they want to choose. Go whatever way they want to go. That's not how the Bible's vision of parenting is. The vision the Scriptures give of what it means to be a parent in God's eyes is that mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, we get together and we pour into these children and we give them a vision for what it means to walk with God that we give them a vision of what it means to trust God, to worship God, that we impress the ways of God on our children. We don't just leave it up to them to kind of sort out and choose whatever they want to choose. Yes, they need to own their own faith as they grow and become more independent, but that faith has to be grounded on a foundation, a biblical worldview where Christ is at the center. That's not being old school. That's not being controlling. That's called being a parent. That's being a parent. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, that's what that means. And so young people in the room, you might be super frustrated right now about something your mom or dad or grandma or grandpa are doing. And again, we don't always get it right. We're fallen, we fall short. But our heart and desire for you and the next generation is get a vision for walking with Jesus. Choose him. There's no one more important than him. He's the wisest and the best. Keep saying yes to Jesus in a hundred different ways, a thousand different times. We want you to see that and embrace that and build your life on that. That's parents of everything else we do. That's number one. That's the one thing that's going to matter a hundred years from now. Yes, we want to see them grow academically and socially and all the artistically and athletically. Yes, all those things are important. They're just penultimate. The ultimate is this, what Nehemiah's fired up about. He's like, wait a minute. 
the spiritual condition of the family is eroded to the point where the kids don't even know Hebrew. Now, he's he's not going to be nice. He's pulling his hair out. He's upset because there's a lot on the line with this issue. Church, I think, how are we doing? How are we doing with this? We need a good gut check in all of our hearts. There's a lot on the line. It's hard being a parent today. It's hard being a young person today. It's hard growing up in these worlds. Not impossible, I'm just saying hard. And we got to double down. We got to double down in putting our hands on this plow and helping our kids get a vision of walking with Jesus all the days of their life. It's too important. That cannot be sacrificed. It's got to get reset and put dead center. I like what J.I. Packer said. He summarized this whole section this way. Packer said it this way. Any embarrassment we might feel at Nehemiah's forthrightness could be a sign of our own spiritual or moral limitations rather than his. Was it weakness that in Nehemiah's code of conduct, the modern shibboleth, which is the Hebrew for cultural principle, thou shalt be nice, seems to have had no place, while thou shalt be faithful to God and zealous for God was evidently basic to it. Hear this, would Moses, David, Jesus, or Paul have ever qualified as Mr. Nice Guy? The assumption so common today that niceness is of the essence of goodness needs to be exploded. Nehemiah should not be criticized for thinking that there are more important things in life than being nice. Clear is kind, unclear is unkind. So worship team, come on back. Here's how we're going to draw this to a close and head over to the communion tables together. This brings us to the final words in the final chapter of Nehemiah's book. If you got your Bibles open, you can glance down there yourself and see what were the final words he wrote and spoke. Here's how the book ends. Verse 31 of chapter 13, remember me with favor, oh my God. I imagine he did pray that if this was all in one day. He's like, Lord, help me, please remember me. I'm trying to do the right thing. This is a lot. Remember all the scars he had built prior to this. And then he goes and he's probably thinking, maybe it's some chapter of his life and leadership he might be able to look at and be encouraged somewhere. And he just comes home and just one front after another. He's like, gosh. It's like, Lord, remember me with favor. He just cries out from a posture of prayer, which as we've seen all through Nehemiah's life, right? One of the many threads, one thread through him is from the opening bell of receiving the assignment. He hits his knees and falls on his face in prayer before God, all the way through the opposition, all the way through the celebration, and now all the way through the reformation. He's just crying out to God. He's a man of prayer. Derek Kidner, who's an Old Testament scholar, said it this way, to hear God's well done is the most cleansing of ambitions. Isn't that a great phrase? The cleansing of ambitions. To live your one and only life in such a way to get to the end of the run and to hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. That's all Nehemiah wanted. And so how about you? How about me? There's some examinations that need to happen today. We're going to the communion tables. You don't need to be a member of Eagle. You can just, you can join us here at the table. You just, you don't have to be a regular attender. But here's what the scriptures are clear. You do need to have sorted out in your heart that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, that you've said yes to him. And maybe this morning, 
that's what you want to do, in a moment I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that, and then you can take communion for the first time. Or maybe this morning it's some stuff's kind of gotten out of bounds and and it needs to get redirected and it's just kind of a reset point. Maybe this morning's a little bit of a reset. Maybe it's some reset and some relational compromise that's been going on. Maybe you've got your own little personal Tobias situation going on and you just know the Lord's been speaking to you about it and there's some lines that need to be drawn out of love. There's some thou shalls and thou shall nots and you know it and you know the Lord's been tapping on your heart about it and you just need to reset and redraw some lines. Or maybe it's in the area of giving and finance and stewardship. Or maybe it's in the area of Sabbath and work and six and ones, all, it's all messed up and you know and you're, you don't like who you're becoming. Or maybe it's the home front. Maybe you feel strong conviction about what's going on spiritually at home. And so this is your point. As we come to the table, it's examine, it's reset, it's recalibrate. Because when we take these elements, church, when we hold the elements in our hand, they represent Jesus's well done. He finished. It's the cleansing of ambition that Jesus of Nazareth. You want the power for reformation on all these fronts? It's to the communion table we go. The power for change rests in his broken body and shed blood. This isn't about us, you know, working harder, trying harder. It's about us receiving a life from beyond us by his grace that gives us power to live the way he's called us to live. End this day at this time. And so as the tables on the sides here, there's um, gluten-free at both options there. And then we've got our prayer benches here at the front. And these are open for you. If you come and you need prayer in any sort, we'll have folks on both sides to pray with you and pray for you. If you want to be anointed with oil, maybe you've got some things going on with your physical body or emotionally, relationally going on, you come, we're glad to anoint you with oil because we believe what the Bible says, that God still heals today. Some of you have that testimony. God's touched your body. Last night I was with a young man and two weeks ago we anointed... Uh, him with oil. And he said to me last night, he says, hey, I want you to know, like my body, it's a lot better. Like I think God did something. I'm like, that sounds like what the Lord does. And so we take the communion elements and then we anoint the sick with oil and we pray and offer that prayer in faith, trusting that Jesus can make us whole. So you come for prayer during that time. But at the end of the day, and you come alone, you can come with your family, your friends, gather and just spread out all around this room. Teen's going to lead through a couple of songs here. We're just going to create some space to kind of have some worship and prayer and communion together because we want in the depth of our hearts to resolve with what Nehemiah resolved. Hey, it's way too important to get casual about this. It really matters. Communion table matters. Christ's sacrifice matters. His well done matters. And then he calls us to be, hey, he says, hey, choose me. Choose the holy and cleansing ambition of hearing well done at the end of your run. Let's stand together. Jesus, what a journey it's been with Nehemiah for these months. Thank you for preserving a book. Thank you for an amazing life that just kept saying yes to you, even when it was really hard. All the scars that we've seen built in Nehemiah, one day in glory, I just can't imagine the conversation we can have with him. And thank you for all the lessons transferred to our lives. And now as we go to the tables, we do so examining our hearts, surrendering our hearts, and choosing and saying yes to you. And right now, if you've never said yes to Jesus as your Savior, you just simply, in the quietness of your own heart, you just say, Jesus, save me. I know I'm a sinner. I got a bunch of stuff that needs to be washed away in your love and grace. I confess my sin to you, and I say, Jesus, save me, cleanse me, fill me with your spirit. I want to live for you. You just pray that in your own words, in the quietness of your heart, and Jesus promises he comes. He will save you. He will forgive you. 
He will fill you with his spirit and he will teach you how to live. And then others, maybe it's an examination and maybe you just pause in these moments and just let the spirit examine the heart and search the heart and get some things reset and recentered. And then Jesus, we go to these tables and we hold these elements and we do so as an act of worship, remembering your great sacrifice. Thank you for your broken body. Thank you for your shed blood. There's absolutely nothing we've walked in here with that those elements aren't fully capable of dealing with. We pray it in Jesus' name.